This podcast is brought to you by Doro Phones. Hi, my name is Charlie Bird, and for almost 40 years, I reported on some of the biggest stories of the day. Once again, there's so much happening across the world, and not least in America. So who better to talk to than an Irishman who has had his finger on the pulse of American politics for so, so many decades? A successful publisher, a voice of Irish America, and a trusted Washington intermediary. It's a pleasure to welcome Neil O'Dowd. Neil, you're very welcome to this podcast. I hope things are going well for you in the Big Apple. Yes, indeed, Charlie. We had a huge snowstorm, but fortunately it's cleared. So we're looking forward to spring here. It's been a tough winter. January has just gone. But on the 20th of January, um, Joe Biden placed his hand on the Bible and was sworn in as the president of the United States. On that day, I was on a dry January, but I I took a, a drink that very moment that he put his hand on the Bible. Where is America? Where has it been to before Joe Biden was sworn in? And then we'll look at where it's going to go since he was sworn in. It was in a very dangerous place. And I don't think we fully understood just how dangerous. I mean, the death of a constitutional democracy like the United States was something that nobody would ever, ever have countenance up to a year ago. And then when Trump came in, we thought a lot of it was all blather. And then you suddenly realized the longer he went on that he was signaling and and telegraphing his intentions very publicly. He would say, I can't be beaten because the poll would be fixed. And people would say, that's just Trump and Trump when the time comes. But as he got closer to the time and and his language got more dangerous and verbose and uh, rabble-rising, he began to suddenly begin to see just how thin the constraints of democracy really are and how little we have between us and anarchy. When you have a guy like Trump standing at a podium on the day that we're about, one of the most sacred days in America, where we're about to elect a president in terms of the electoral college, and he's ordering a mob to show up outside the building where every leader in American politics, with the exception of himself, is there, which a building which is strangely very little guarded given the importance of the occasion. And then a riot commences and you hear the you know, the sound of the riot and you you think, you know, you hear that they're trying to hang the vice president. You don't process it all, Charlie. It's like in the middle of many of the huge stories you've been in, where you look back at it and you think but did that really happen? How was I thinking about that? I, I was just thinking it was so insane that the very, very basic body and soul of America is the foundation of American and world democracy. And yet it came within, you know, just a few minutes or a few hours or a few days. Or Do you really before. believe that, Neil, that it came within that close of teetering? I think if if Trump had had of one, we would have had a Putin-style constitutional dictatorship in America. I think we would have had immediate investigations of Joe Biden, of Hillary Clinton. I think we would have had a savage agenda of getting back at his enemies. I think he would have transformed the country uh, to a point where, you know, we wouldn't recognize it anymore. And I do, I do honestly believe we're on the verge of fascism, yes. My God. And you have had such a long um, period watching what was going on in in the United States. I mean, you know Joe Biden. Uh, is it fair to say you'd be a fan of his? 
I would, yeah. I'd be very much a fan of his for a long time. In fact, the first time I interviewed him was back in 1987, if you could believe it. And the reason I interviewed 87. him was he was a year, 87, yeah, 1987. I know, Charlie, it's... <laughs> it's <laughs> Uh, I was four years old. No, but um, I, I went to see him on the basis. I had a magazine, I still have, called Irish America, and we look up and profile prominent Irish Americans. And somebody pointed out to me that the Washingtonian magazine had an interview with this new Senator Biden, where he talked about Wolf Tone was his political hero. And I thought that was very interesting coming from a guy who didn't seem to even have an Irish name. So I went down to meet him in his office on Capitol Hill, and um, I was utterly surprised by his knowledge of Ireland. I mean, he he was actually a working-class Irish kid brought up in a very Irish family whose, whose grandmother remembers and kept letters written in Gaelic to her family from emigrants back in Ireland, from people in Ireland to emigrants in the Finnegan family, as it was. And how his grandmother would get him to bed would be to threaten him with the blackened hands. And so he grew up in this strange Irish milieu and became very deeply impacted by it. So when the time came and I interviewed him, I found, as you well know, Charlie, a lot of these guys, these politicians, you know, they they come out in St. Patrick's Day and they say, you know, we're Irish and we're all happy to be. But this was actually somebody who put a lot of thought into his philosophy and a lot of thought into his background. And what was most interesting was, with a name like Biden, he didn't really have to fit the stereotype of an Irish politician. But he chose it, even though, like, if you look at the Senate at the time, there was very little room to do Irish stuff because you had the mighty, the mighty Ted Kennedy, you had Moynihan, you had Leahy, you had very big players who were handling the Irish agenda, basically. But Biden just sort of ponied up to the bar and said, hey, this Irish thing is really, really important to me. And it's actually that's actually been true ever since. And when I go back and read the original interview, there's a tremendous amount of the stuff that he still talks about, his pride and his heritage. That was there right from the beginning. So I think it's genuine. I don't think it's manufactured. And I think it's also very importantly based on knowledge. And he's been a frequent visitor to Ireland. And he understands the history there in a way that maybe 99% of politicians don't here in America. Do you think that um, he can be a good friend to Ireland now? Oh, I think he can be a great friend to Ireland. I think... Uh, you know, power shifts in, in in America very markedly when there's a new president. And, you know, the Irish embassy has become a focal point now. Every other ambassador in, in Washington is deeply jealous of the fact that Ireland has a special place in this president's heart. And that's the time that you move in and get your business done. I mean, he, the fact is that the Irish ambassador or Irish America itself can knock on any door in the Biden administration, which we never could do with Trump, and get a very good reception. Uh, the other day, there was a list of people who are very close to the president. Three of the six names were Irish. Uh, and, you know, it's that kind of administration, probably on parallel since Kennedy and his Irish mafia, so to speak, that you have so many Irish Americans in prominent positions. So on issues, as we saw, like Brexit, you know, Biden is utterly unafraid to come out and talk about that. On issues like immigration, he's going to be very good. On issues like Ireland's place in, in, in the world, I think he'd be very, very positive. And I think as much as it can be done, I think we'll have a friend in the White House, unlike none we've had since Bill Clinton. 
And maybe at this very juncture on, on the day we're talking, there's things beginning to happen back in the north of Ireland again because of Brexit and people are even now saying the Good Friday Agreement could be dead. Now, I'm clearly going to talk to you later on about your involvement as the peace process unfolded. But you, do you think that if people are threatening in some way or some fashion the Good Friday Agreement, that it will be good to have Joe Biden in in the White House? Oh, very much so. I, I think that's a crucial thing. And Johnson has made clear that he immediately wants to create a relationship with Biden. But I can guarantee you that Biden will listen to the Irish and particularly the Irish government and their opinion. And I think the issue of the border and the Good Friday Agreement will be uppermost in his mind if you asked him what was important in Ireland. And I think he'd be very, very positive about helping out in whatever way he could. And I think it's a big stick and all he has to do really is wave it uh, as he proved when he was not even in power and he talked about not messing around with the with the border uh, situation. So I, I think that comprehensively he will deal with it if there is a crisis that you know, we'll have a friend in court and a very powerful one too. The one other thing about Joe Biden and his presidency, I mean... Okay, he now basically just about controls the Senate and the Congress is still in the hands of the Democrats. But Joe Biden says he wants to reach out and he wants to reach out to the Republicans. Now, there's a huge split within the Republican, uh, if you like, movement in the United States. Do you think it's going to make it really difficult for Joe Biden to try and do things and deliver well, I think he learned the hard way with Obama that reaching out to Republicans is not the way to go. But I think he still have to amount to sentiments. But in Obama's time, when he was putting together the Obama health care package, he spent two years trying to bring Republicans on board and at every turn was thwarted. And the Obama health care package passed without a single Republican vote. And Joe Biden is no fool. He knows he has to pay lip service to the cries for let's all get together and come by, yeah, let's all work in unison. But you saw what the Republicans did the other night. They put together a ridiculous financial package, less than one third of what Biden is going to put together, came up to the White House and tried to sell Biden on it. Uh, you know, it, it was it's clear to me that Biden is playing the game, but he's an old hand at the Senate. He's an old hand at negotiation. And he, he remembers very well because he was deeply involved in the waste of time and energy and commitment that the first two years of Obama uh, became when they tried to bring Republicans on board. And at that time, they even had a bigger majority and they still wouldn't come on board. So this is a Republican Party that's gone off into the the ether with crazy stuff about QAnon and conspiracies. This isn't a, a Republican Party that Joe Biden would feel comfortable doing any kind of a deal with, in my opinion. But do you think that's going to create not just for 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 Biden, but it's going to create a huge problem for for politics in the United States in the coming years. If you have um, Republican Congress uh, men and women who are supporters of QAnon and the Proud Boys and are carrying guns in in in, in into Congress, I mean, Neil, where where is American politics going? Well, there's a very interesting parallel, Charlie. I wrote a book called Lincoln and the Irish. And um, I learned something about Lincoln that was very significant, that 
The reason he founded the Republican Party, de facto reason was because of the know-nothings, which was not unlike QAnon of its time. There were people who hated the Irish, who hated the blacks, who hated everybody, who carried out street riots and were connected with the old Whig Party, inextricably bound with the old Whig Party. And Lincoln looked at that and just rejected the whole message that they had to know nothings and said, I need to start a new party here. And he went off and was one of the founders of the Republican Party. Now, fast forward to our present day, they're at the very same impasse. They cannot continue with this ridiculous blather that these people are going on with and expect people to take them seriously. And if you look recently, even yesterday, you look at McConnell. McConnell, if nothing else, is a very smart political strategist and he sees the appalling damage that will be done to the Republican Party if the Trump wing takes over. And I think that's the reality for Republicans. Trump can never be president. On any given day in his presidency, he never went over 50%. Do you think he could come back again? Do you think he could come back in four years' time? I think he could come back and completely destroy the Republican Party. But I don't think he could ever come back and win the White House. You look at you just look at one thing that's been overlooked, Charlie, which is the Senate races in Georgia after the election. You yes, had a amazing. Jewish guy and you had a black guy. Now that was like in Georgia, elected because the middle class said, We've had enough of this Trump BS. And that was exactly what it was. It was the anti Trump vote in, in Georgia, which elected a black man who'd never been elected in the history of Georgia and a Jewish guy who had never been elected in the history of Georgia. So I think the signs are very clear that the fracture in the Republican Party is ultimately inevitable, and two two different parties will emerge. One will be what Trump was calling the Patriot Party, and the other is the old Republican Party. And I don't see any way that those two things can coexist together because they will never win an election. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Neil, you go back so long. Um, I mean, I can remember when I joined RTE, even as a researcher. You can't and talk, Charlie. You're the youngster compared to me. <laughs> Tell me what brought you uh, to the United States and what brought you particularly to New York. Well, uh, in the beginning, I was a school teacher in Dublin and I came out for the summer to America and just fell in. When was that? 1976. 76. And Ireland, as you will remember, was a very different place then and a very constrained, narrow place that was very different to what it is now. But 
I remember thinking to myself, I really want to come back out here. And uh, I went back home and taught for another year. And then I said, no, I'm, I'm just going to put this aside and head for America. And I did it with a young man's lack of caution. I did it with the idea of what the hell, you know, you, you got to do something with your life. And teaching in Dublin wasn't going to do it for me. So I basically got on a plane. I, I was a reasonably good Gaelic footballer and I went to Chicago. And I signed up with a team there and they got me a job and got me a place to stay and an instant group of friends. And then when winter came, I decided I, I wanted to go west, see what California was like. So I arrived in California in 1979, sorry, 1981, and started a newspaper there. That was my beginning in the newspaper business. And uh, it just kind of all flowed from that. Basically, it was a sense of being very, and you will understand this better than anyone I know, that sense of restlessness that you need to go on to the next story or the next thing, which I've seen you do so well. And I think that's what it was in me, was this idea of being a young man heading west, basically, and enjoying the experience tremendously, opening up to a whole new world in America and understanding just how different the world could be and... Uh, was it the connections which made all of this possible? I had no connections other than being a pretty decent Gaelic footballer. Um, when I went to California, I had a team from California that put me up and gave me money and let, let me play for them, which was great. And uh, they were called the Connemara Gales, so they were a tough bunch of guys. But I went into the construction business there with them and... Uh, had always wanted to be a writer. My graduate uh, graduation was in Irish and English. Um, and so I was always wanting to be a writer. So I noticed that there was a gap in the market where 1981 was the beginning of a new wave of people leaving Ireland, coming to America, to the bad economic depression of the time. And, you know, the community was very isolated basically the Irish American community for a long time because there hadn't been a lot of immigration because of the 1965 act. So myself and a friend decided to start a paper aimed at the young new immigrants. And that was the turning point. I mean, I, I haven't looked back for ill or for good since, Charlie. But when you say, when I, I, it's really so, well, it's so colourful in a way, you say you know connections, but you had connections because... Your GAA um, brought you, your prowess in the GAA brought you into the Irish connections wherever you went, wherever you went. So, I mean, you, you were donning the jersey in a way, weren't you? <laughs> I was. And, you know, it's one of the great unreported stories about the GAA is the socially part of it and the, the getting together and the fact that it allows that opportunity for a young guy like me to come out and find my way because who would I have known otherwise? I wouldn't have known anyone. And, you know, you, you go to the dances, you go to the games. It gave you a social life and a whole sense of belonging that was very recognisable to you but also very different in one way that you were 3,000 miles from Ireland, not, not sitting in a pub in Dublin but sitting one in San Francisco after playing a match in Golden Gate Fields that day and heading home, heading back to the pub with a bunch of guys who were from all over the country and also had the kind of mentality that they had, to, they wanted to leave Ireland for the sake of trying something different. I mean, I remember I'd meet people who were working on the Alaskan pipeline who'd come into San Francisco for the weekend and 
they'd be making incredible money up in Alaska and then they'd go crazy in California and to booze and women and everything. It was, it was like a little wild west in its own way. But it was, uh, it was a very, very interesting time. Very interesting time. But were these people, were they looking over their shoulder at that stage? Were they legitimately in the United States or were they hiding from the authorities like some people even today might be? No, I mean, I was undocumented, but it carried none of the weight that it does today. It really didn't. But you were undocumented? I was, yeah. yeah. I mean, For I, how long? Um, well, I arrived in 79 for the last time and I got legal in 85. So about six years. And was that difficult being undocumented for six years? I, you know, I honestly didn't think about it that much because everybody around me was and there was no pressure. There was no impending kind of immigration bill or issue about immigration at the time. It was just an accepted fact that that was the way the community was. And, uh, you know, I remember going back to Ireland and um, coming back in again, not being afraid of being stopped, which was, when I think of it, very, very uh, dangerous thing to do. But it, it, it didn't strike you as much at the time at all that will strike somebody now. And we'll talk about it later on. I mean, now, if you were coming back in, you were undocumented, it, it could be difficult, couldn't it? Oh, it would be incredibly difficult. I mean, the whole immigration issue has been politicised and radicalised to the point where, you know, it was one of the great mag- magnet forces that uh, Trump drew on to, to win votes was, you know, identify the immigrant and try and insult and sully him and talk about Mexican rapists and play to the worst extremes of people's ideas about immigrants. So he, he, that was one of the main planks of his presidency. Neil, when the name Neil O'Dowd is mentioned, and it, for me, it resonates with just one thing, the whole development of the peace process in, in the very late 80s into the 90s, and all the way on up until the Good Friday Agreement. You know, I worked in RTE all the time and many a day, Neil O'Dowd would pop up on radio, Morning Ireland or some other, the news at 1, the news at one thirty, the news at 6.30, Neil O'Dowd. I mean, you lived the peace process in America, didn't you, and the whole development. Tell me, just tell me a little bit about how you got involved in it, how it developed for you. Well, you know, Charlie, um, when you pick a career as a journalist, there are always overwhelming stories. There are always one or two stories that never let go of you. And in my lifetime, those were illegal immigration and Northern Ireland. Those were two issues that my readers, no matter where I had my publication, taught deeply about, were concerned about, were interested in. And there were two issues that I decided to jump in and get involved in. In the first case, um, we began a lobbying group. I was in New York at this time for immigration bill for the Irish undocumented, which ended up with the Morrison and Donnelly visas, which allowed 40,000 people, including myself, to become legal. Um, so it was... Um, that was an important thing, by the way. Those Don't slide over that. Getting those visas was hugely important at the time. It was massively important, and you're right. It was the kind of story I was on constantly on Irish radio or television talking about the undocumented and uh, even 
to my mother's eternal joy got on the Late Late Show where she loved Gay Bourne so much that she couldn't even watch the show. She was so nervous when I was on. But what I'm talking about is just we decided on different tactics because the tactics of the Irish put on Northern Ireland and immigration were to be on the outside protesting. And what we did was we raised money for for congressmen. We lobbied congressmen. We we had Irish days on Capitol Hill. We did a hell of a lot of work. We identified people who would be helpful to us. Like Bruce Morrison was an obscure congressman from Connecticut that nobody knew had even any Irish roots. And, um, who had no history of involvement with Ireland. And we went to him because he was on one of the immigration subcommittees. And he immediately just picked it up and ran with it and has been one of the great heroes of legalizing the Irish in America and indeed the Northern Irish uh, peace process, American involvement. So we did the groundwork in a very different way. We did the groundwork in terms of we weren't going to march and protest outside the U.S. Embassy in Dublin. We were actually going to get in the ground, identify the issue, find the politicians who dealt with it and lobby them very hard to do something about it, which resulted in the Donnelly Morrison visas. And it was that experience that played directly into the other great story of my life, which was the Irish peace process. Because what we learned there was the Norades and all those people were essentially wasting their time. They were being dismissed as radicals who would get nowhere. And what we had to do was ingrain ourselves in the political culture make Northern Ireland an issue that people cared about, not because of violence or the IRA, but because of something that might happen that America could become involved in. And with that in mind, in the 1990 presidential election, we looked at the candidates very closely and we came up with, luckily for us, the obscure governor of Arkansas and found out that he was extremely interested in Northern Ireland, which was a revelation And the reason he was interested was he had been in Oxford during the outbreak of the civil rights movement in 1968-69, was very familiar with Bernadette Devlin and her people around her and and that drive that time for civil rights. So this was a guy who was in one way waiting to be asked to get involved in an issue. And then we worked very hard with Irish Americans for Clinton to raise money for him. And then to our great luck and, and forever gratitude, he was elected. And did you get to know him well? I did. I got to know him well. You know, you never know the private person that well. But certainly I, I got to know him and Hillary over the next 20 years. Um, you know, I spent time in their house. I spent time with them in many, many places on the campaign trail or I ran a lot of fundraisers for them. I know you interviewed John Fitzpatrick last week or a few weeks ago. John was one of the great uh, guys as well who got involved with me in that whole thing and setting up a relationship with the Clintons. And uh, the other side of the bargain was somebody had to go to Sinn Féin and tell them that there was a new sheriff in town in America and they should start thinking about... um, realigning themselves to try and bring America in to the conflict in terms of trying to resolve it. And were you there, were you involved when uh, Bill Clinton got that famous visa for Jerry Adams? Yeah, actually, that was our, that was specifically the result of a, of a lunch we had uh, about six months before that with Bill Flynn, who was a big businessman who was very 
much involves on the Irish-American activity. Kieran Staunton, who was my brother-in-law, who had been deeply involved in Irish issues and myself. And we made a decision that rather than go for the special envoy, we'd go for the visa for Jerry Adams. And the reason we did that is we felt very strongly that the American influence on Sinn Féin would be helped enormously if we, if we could prove that we could get Adams into America. And what we wanted was to be the outsider, to be the outside-the-box force, so to speak, that when we went back to Ireland, that it would inevitably cause relationships to change because the Americans were suddenly involved. Instead of the Unionists just dealing with the British and the Irish and the Nationalists, they'd also have to deal with the Americans and vice versa for Sinn Féin. But when we talked to Sinn Féin, we found them very open to the American approach. We found them very open to the idea that we promised they could break out of the ghetto they were in and become, you know, part of the mainstream. And that we would we didn't promise, but we said we would do our very best to create an opportunity for Jerry Adams to come to America. Were you sticking your neck out then? Sticking our neck out is a long way because, <laughs> if, you know, there was a huge amount of pushback. I mean, I know, and I think you will know this, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, sort of... Uh, revisionist thinking about how the peace process came about. And I see people who claimed they were involved who never had anything to do with it. But I also see people who were very, very critical of what America was trying to do, the Irish Americans, and how they were trying to just lay the label of IRA terrorist supporters on us, um, something that we never wanted wanted to be or did. And um, what we wanted to do was become a player and bring America into the Seen because at that point, you know, there was a feeling worldwide with the South African peace process, with the Israeli peace process, that it was time to look at Ireland again and redo our efforts, redouble our efforts to try and make something happen. So it was based on the immigration analysis where we got through to Morrison and Donnelly, that we got through to Clinton, then and with Clinton, we won a massive battle to win Jerry Adams the visa. Uh, by a very short head in racing parlance. And um, the visa was one of the turning points. Without that visa, it would have been much more difficult to get the IRA to cease far. Of all the things I did in my life, I think the visa was the single biggest victory. Well, I, I would be absolutely certain of that. A lot of people talk about uh, Jerry Adams and the visa and... You know that I'm a friend of a person called Rita O'Hare, who was always went to into America with Jerry Adams. He was in Sinn Féin. How significant, how important was she, do you believe, to the peace process? I think she was of incredible value in the United States. I think when Rita was appointed to head the North American arm of Sinn Féin, I think she did such an incredible job because of the level of suspicion and the level of wondering about what was Sinn Féin going to be like in the US and what were they going to do and should we talk to these people? And then in walked this five-foot-nothing red-haired woman from Belfast who swore like a trooper and cursed like a dog and was just the most uh, exciting and fascinating character of the Troubles in some ways in that she... She walked among the high and mighty and she walked with Clinton and she walked with subsequently President Obama and, uh, you know, got to know these people and everybody had a, a name and a face and she knew them all very, very well. And she just did 
a remarkable human job of making the thing personal, making the thing vivid and alive for people as to what could be achieved by the American involvement. So she'd be one of the very, very special people of this period. And again, would be an absolutely key figure when history is written uh, in terms of her ability to nurture and build and basically create the entire North American relationship. Do you think that will survive? Do you think that the relationship uh, is going to uh, endure now? I mean, we've had the Good Friday Agreement, we've had the peace process, and the truth is Ireland has changed. We, nobody wants to go back to what I, I don't particularly like, the cliché, the bad old days, but, I mean, nobody wants to go back there at all. Do you think it's going to endure Well, I think the most interesting thing, and this is what's fascinating about Ireland, is that you look away and something happens. Like we looked away for a while and suddenly here comes Brexit out of the blue, out of left field. I had never heard people talking about it in a serious way until the shocking morning that the election was a result. It's a bit like when Donald Trump won. People looked at each other and said, did I just see this? Have the British actually voted to get out of Europe? So that obviously English nationalism began expressing itself, which again, in this very strange way, opened the door in America to Irish unification, to a discussion about Irish unification, because English nationalism is always matched by Irish nationalism and now Scots nationalism. And I think that they've opened up uh, Pandora's box by you know, going for Brexit and announcing that basically the only important people on the two islands were themselves. And I think that's had a profound impact to the point where the debate within Irish America, which is always slightly ahead of the debate in Ireland, by the way, is how how will this border poll affect the issue of unification? And what do we need to do to have this border poll? I think there's a whole different train coming down the tracks in the next five to 10 years where there's a decent chance of a border poll that would restore United Ireland. And I know that sounds like fantasy to a lot of people, but it also sounded like fantasy that the IRA would ever go to a ceasefire or we'd ever get visas for young Irish undocumented or whatever the case was. It's just a matter of reality biting after about another 10 years with demographics going so hard in favour of the nationalists that this question will become front and centre. You lived through the period, uh, and you mentioned him there, uh, Barack Obama, I mean, I covered his election and it is always, it still sticks in my head that a black person was elected president of the United States not only once but a second time and now we have a black vice president. I mean, I know you've been, you say the Republicans and things are changing and there's an awful underbelly feeling in the United States but surely the fact that we've had a black president and now a black vice president, there is still hope in the United States, isn't there? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, one of the most moving moments of my life was standing on 125th Street in Harlem the night that Barack Obama was elected and talking to the granddaughter of a slave. And just this old woman, she was 92, talking about, cascade of tears. And I have to tell you one thing, Charlie, I never thought a black person would be elected president of the United States. When people said to me, would Barack Obama be elected before Hillary Clinton? I would have said no way that America was ready for a woman before a black. And that's the beauty of the country, that it confounds you. 
in the way that Ireland has confounded people over the last 10 years with their moves on uh, the abortion bill and all that gay marriage and stuff like that, which has been head snapping for people on the outside. You know, what happened to the narrow sectarian John Charles McQuaid Ireland we all grew up in just poof, disappeared overnight. And I think the same issue is happening now that people are looking at the political scenario and saying, can we get back to the Obama era? Can we get back to something like that? I think we can. I think that Joe Biden's victory meant that the republic stood, that the legal system stood up, that some very brave Republicans stood up, and that we can progress in a normal way. But I think we came very close to ending that dream forever uh, with the antics of President Trump and the attempt to foment insurrection. So I do think there's great hope for America because that's the lesson I brought. I came over here with nothing. I did well. Country was always good to me. And you know what bothers me the most, Charlie, is these rich white guys, these senators, like uh, the guy down in Missouri and the guy in Texas, these are the products of the best education system in the world. They've been to Harvard, they've been to Yale, they're lawyers, they're this. Why are they so angry? What are they angry about? They've got everything on a plate. If this was a black guy from Harlem who'd been out of work for 20 years, I'd understand that anger. But I don't get the anger. You, you, you've been the most privileged people probably on earth. What are you angry about? That you're white? That you have every advantage? That you're skilled? You, you, you're a lawyer from Yale Law School? That you're a United States senator? I mean, it's disgraceful. And it's disgraceful because... Behind it all, they know they're posturing, they know the issues they're pushing are not real, but they're trying to get to power. Neil, before I end the podcast, I just want to ask you just one last question about the the Irish in America, are some of them conservative people? To, you know, they're trying to put labels on the the Irish in America. I mean, are there differences? Do we Should we be looking in different directions? I think there are profound differences, yeah. I think there is a group. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are Trump Republicans. And when I asked them about it, it was really the issue of lower taxation. These are people from Wall Street and people who are doing well in the stock market. And, you know, that's fair enough. If that's why they like them. Uh, yeah, I understand that as a self-perpetuating thing where they would get richer uh, because Trump would cut their taxes. It's not very attractive to me personally, but to them, obviously, it meant an awful lot. But I rarely meet an Irishman who agrees with the kind of agenda that Trump was pushing down in Washington on Insurrection Day. I, I, I really feel strongly that most Irish Americans would recoil at that. And I think that's been proven by, if you look at the closest approximation you can get is the Catholic vote. And the Catholic vote swung quite significantly against Trump this time, which I think was an indicator that people just felt, no, this is this has gone too far, this isn't right. Having said all that, I am constantly amazed, as recently as last week, talking to a guy who I would consider a product of one of Ireland's best universities, a very smart guy, and all he could talk about was how Trump got cheated. And it's like, you can't talk to these people. They don't. They don't accept any form of reality. They live in a distorted world. And it's actually very worrying because if it's coming from somebody in the South who's you know, still refighting the Civil War, it's one thing. But when it comes from a very smooth, successful Irish-born person in New York, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to accept. 
Neil, can I ask you, as we end the the interview, can I ask you, do you consider yourself Irish or do you consider yourself American? <laughs> you know, it's a question I often get asked and I always say, the only way I can answer it is when I get on a plane to Ireland, I always think I'm going home. And I still use the word home after 40 years in America. And that's how I feel. I still feel Ireland is home. And my family is there and a lot of my roots and my heritage and, you know, all the things uh, growing up there. I love America and it's a wonderful country and it's done incredible things to me. But I do think that Ireland is still home in a very strange way that I can't really explain to anyone. But would you come home, would you retire and live here or will you stay in America? Well, I think I made that decision a long time ago that I was going to stay in America and uh, I haven't regretted it. You know, it's been very good to me. My wife is American, my daughter is American. They would have no real interest in living in Ireland and uh, I love going there. But, uh, you know, a cold winter in Ireland might change change my mind. Um, But... But a cold winter day in New York, which you've had in the last couple of days. Yeah, it's not exactly wonderful either. But give me West Kerry in in the springtime and I wouldn't swap it for anywhere on earth. Neil O'Dowd, Neil, I have to say, to be honest, you're one of the remarkable uh, journalists that I've ever met. And you are really a fantastic person. And uh, all I can say is thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. Uh, on this podcast. It's funny to think that you've been in America for 43 years because you've been such a young and relevant voice for Irish America. And hopefully uh, you'll be standing sometime beside President Biden, maybe back in the White House again when things can happen for celebrations on Patrick's Day. But Neil O'Dowd, thank you very much for talking to me today. And like everybody here in Ireland, stay safe and look after yourself. Thank you very much, uh, Neil. This podcast was produced by Simon Murta and engineered by Mark Murphy. 